All right, so here we go. Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. So we'll remember that leading up to this, um, there have been several things that have happened. Jesus has been uh, having some pretty close time with um, the disciples. And uh, the big thing in in, uh, Matthew chapter 16 was uh, Peter's um, confession of of who Christ really was. And uh, as we wrapped up that section uh, last week, we saw in verse 21, it says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and be killed and on the third day be raised. So things were starting to get real. Uh, Lots of teaching, lots of miracles, lots of um, uh, just hanging out with Jesus. You know, how amazing that must have been. Uh, They knew something was kind of building, uh, or at least... they're starting to realize that something big is happening and and now it's getting real sobering that uh, what they have probably pictured this whole thing turning out to be is maybe going to be a little different than they had originally expected verse 1 of 17 and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. It says, and after six days. So this can be taken a couple of ways. It could be that they were just continuing to hang out in the same area where they were for six days, and, and then they went up onto the mountain. Or some people have said it, maybe it took about six days to get from where they were to the mountain that they ended up. Uh, could be looked at a couple of different ways. If you take the last um, option, uh, it gets you uh, a little easier to uh, Mount Hermon, which many people believe it was Mount Hermon um, that they ascended. Maybe not all the way to the top, uh, 9,600 feet above sea level, um, which makes it, what, 50% taller than Mount Mitchell, um, uh, give or take. the other kind of traditional uh, view was uh, Mount Tabor, which is a little uh, closer, not as tall. Uh, but there's some reasons that, um, that people think it was Mount Hermon. And um, even if they didn't go all the way to the top, which they say is snow-capped pretty much the whole year, even if they went almost up there, you can imagine what it would have been like in the days before smog, which is obviously a very real thing, before those days, what would it have been like to go up that high and look down? We're spoiled, right? We have satellite imagery. We have Google Earth. We have maps. We have shots from space. We have shots from the plane, from balloons, from nowadays drones. But to have that sort of perspective would have been amazing. Would have been an amazing thing. Probably would have been the first time that maybe they went up there. Uh, Such a big deal. So they went up to a high mountain by themselves. Peter, James, and John, this was as uh, often told uh, Jesus' inner circle of of people that he was especially close to. And in verse 2, they get up there and 
Matthew says, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Can you imagine? This has been a flesh and blood rabbi that they have been following. They've seen him do some amazing things, but now his very presence is changed. His face shone like the sun, his clothes became white as light, and behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, again, what do we say whenever Peter starts talking? Bless his heart. Right, um, he. Uh, you could you could say you know Peter, the imperfect leader. Right, he's out there. He's the one that always seems to speak up first. He doesn't always get it right. Um, I, I think Peter, he, at this point, he feels compelled to do or say something. Maybe the other two are looking at him like, say something. Uh, and it's almost like he doesn't know what to say and this comes out. I mean, it really doesn't make a lot of sense if, you know, why would they, you know, it, it just really doesn't make a lot of sense. But, uh, but Peter just <laughs> thinks something amazing is going on. So there they are. His clothes became white as light and there was Moses and Elijah. So in this pairing, Moses and Elijah, what does Moses represent? Moses received the law from God and gave it to the people, right? So Moses was the law. And when we speak of, especially the Old Testament, we talk about the law and the prophets, right? So here we have uh, the lawgiver and the major prophet that was involved with kind of transitioning that, you know, that God was still with the people. God was still doing miracles, you know. So here we have Elijah. A lot of things that they had in common. They both had mountaintop experiences with God. Uh, they both had unique deaths with an asterisk. Elijah didn't die. Um, Moses died, but nobody really knows where he's buried, so that's kind of interesting. But clearly, this was testimony that here we have the law and the prophets essentially giving the image this is what they were all about Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of the law Jesus was the person to whom everything pointed all the way through you know history from that 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 first gospel that we get just a, a hint of back in Genesis uh, chapter 3 everything's pointing to Jesus and then the prophets of course speaking t um, about who was to come everything was culminating here uh, no doubt as they observe this <clears throat> Jesus flanked by a couple of people um, in not too many weeks away, that's going to happen again. 
they're going to see Jesus high and lifted up, but not in a good way. No doubt this image would have somehow made its way through in comparison and in contrast. The best part about this whole passage, I think, is verse 5. He was still speaking, that's Peter, when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I will please listen to him. So Peter, in the midst of all his drivel, actually, God just interrupts him. God just like, okay, I'm going to stop him before he makes it, you know, says something really bad. God actually interrupts Peter and with the bright cloud and a voice from the cloud, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is the second time that we've heard that type of phrasing. The first was, of course, when he was baptized. And here we have Jesus, I mean, uh, God saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. The other thing that's interesting about this, it says in verse 6, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. They weren't terrified when Jesus turned into bright, shining light. That, that didn't do it for them. Uh, I guess they have been a little desensitized, but when God shows up in a mighty way, uh, they fell on their faces and were terrified, which is always the appropriate response. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they were lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Wow, that's a good day. That's a good day. But it continues, verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples said, Well, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Okay, so there's some, some confusion here, and you have to give them credit, because... They're seeing Jesus and they're saying that, you know, God's saying, this is my son, listen to him. And so they, are, they know that Jesus is the Messiah, but they've been told that Elijah has to come first. Well, if Jesus is already here and Elijah hasn't come, what happened? And he sorts it out for them. And he answered in verse 11, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. They didn't recognize him, but they did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So this prophecy Again, where Moses and Elijah are mentioned, Malachi 4, the last closing passages of the Old Testament, at least the way that we have our Bible organized. Verse 4 says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So, They're trying to sort that out. Now, that passage also goes on. This great verse says says that at that time, you know, God will turn the 
the hearts of the fathers toward their children. And there's this phrasing that all will be made right. So here we have one of those prophecies that it was partially fulfilled by John the Baptist. But there is going to be another Elijah-type situation down the road before everything is fully made right. So you can understand some of their confusion. But in this particular instance about the Elijah that has already come that you didn't recognize, that they did whatever they wanted to to him, they understood that was John the Baptist. Verse 14, they're coming down the mountain and perhaps on their way back to where the rest of the disciples were. And verse 14 says, And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, kneeling before him, and said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's an epileptic, and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they couldn't heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. So who was Jesus speaking to? I guess to the whole thing, to the whole situation, really. Um, This frustration, perhaps, that Jesus was feeling of, you know, I know you're still not getting it. I know he knew that they wouldn't ultimately until the resurrection, but there's this this frustration that uh, I guess perhaps of the work that is still left to be done. And I would imagine that any person who's done Christian service as their as their whole life probably feels some of that. Like, look at what we did, but how much more is left to be done? How much more is left to be done? And that's the kind of feel I'm imagining there. Verse 18, it says, And Jesus rebuked the demon. So now we're finding out that there's a demon involved. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately. Why couldn't we cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. Because truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Um, This move a mountain thing was apparently kind of an idiom about, you know, a a huge task that could be done. And so the, the point, and I'm sure you've heard sermons about mustard seed faith, um, it's not so much the size of the faith as to who your faith is in and to what extent is that faith in alignment with what God's will is. One commentator I was reading in prep for this lesson said that as a young pastor um, there was a sick member in his church and and someone asked uh, will you come and pray uh, for her healing and in all of his own fear and trembling he he did and prayed and got a call the next day that she she's talking again she's she's getting better and and within just a few short days she was essentially back to normal and everyone saw that it was a miracle and even though she was pretty old she lived four more years after that he says also that there were 
like a few months later, he was, you now you can imagine this would kind of raise the likelihood that someone else is going to ask, right? <laughs> um, he was asked, you know, to go to another, um, another home, um, another gal, this time one who had had a bad spinal injury, and, and prayed, and, and asking God to heal. Um, but that didn't happen. And, you know, he said, was my faith any different? And he said, well, no. But God's will was different. And later, that woman came to him and said, not being healed was the best thing that could have happened to her because her brother came to know the Lord in a way that otherwise he wouldn't have had if she had just been healed that way because of how he saw her respond to that ongoing disability that she had. So, you'll see this issue show up in the media when people talk about, they might try to be generic, you know. Um, our thoughts and prayers are with you. What is that? Does that do anything for you? Well, maybe, you know, it's nice to know someone's thinking about you. That's good. But does that really have the impact of, I'm praying to God on your behalf, and God has the power to do something about it? That's a little different, right? Now, nobody on the media is going to want to say that, but the big deal isn't that we are thinking of someone, as good as that is, but it, or that we are people of faith, as good as that is, but there's lots of people of faith, but it makes a difference who your faith is in. If you have a God who is interested in you and is willing to do something about your circumstances, and that's the best of all situations. I actually read that phrase in an evolutionary-based book on stress. They analyzed all the data and said, if you happen to believe in a God who is aware of your circumstances and you believe this God can intervene in your affairs, that that's the best of all circumstances from a stress control standpoint. He just stumbled up on that idea. Verse 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, so now they're all together, right? Now he's bringing the other nine disciples there. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Nobody said, yes, this is what we're shooting for. No, this was very upsetting. This is not the way things were turning out. And so now, you know, every time Jesus is telling them something, um, we get a little bit more information. So now we find out that there's going to be a betrayal. This phrase, Son of Man, is about to be delivered into the hands of men. That was the phrase that you used when you turned someone over to the authorities. It means to hand over. So, the Son of Man is going to be handed over to someone. So this is part of their distress. What's that about? Who's going to do that? Then this is interesting little vignette here, only found in Matthew. 
this would have been an interest, right? He, so he's a tax collector. This talks about tax. Not This wasn't the type of tax that Matthew collected, but it's interesting. Verse 24, when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, yes. Now, they've got Peter cornered here. Apparently, Peter's by himself, probably in town buying supplies. And he just says yes, even though he doesn't know yet <laughs> if, if Jesus pays the tax or not. But he, he said, yes, this is a faith answer on Peter's part. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax, from their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. What does that all mean? I think Jesus is saying if you're the king is the king going to tax the sons no tax the others the people that aren't the sons so Jesus was on the mountain or Peter was on the mountain with Jesus Peter now knows who's the king and Jesus is saying you know we really don't need to pay this do we Simon you get it why we don't have to pay, right? I'm the king. Your sons of the kingdom. But he says, we're going to. He says, verse 27, however, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. This tax was prescribed by God back in Exodus. Uh, a temple tax. Um, it was a half shekel tax. On everyone over 20 years of age would pay that for the maintenance of um, the tabernacle. And that got translated to the temple when the temple was built. So these are um, the religious scribes and Pharisees, whoever had been designated to look out for the temple. And so they were collecting. This. So this is a religious tax. Um, this is interesting. I don't know. Does anybody have um, knowledge of how the current day synagogues do it for their members? Uh, I had a patient tell me this one time that if you're going to be a member of a synagogue, you pay your dues like you do if you're joining a country club. Um, you know, you you write your check for the year. And um, and I as I read this, I, I started thinking, well, that's that's probably where they got this kind of method. You know, the New Testament, it's cheerfully give, meet each other's needs, that sort of thing. But, you know, I could see how that would get changed through the years. But, but yeah, if you're, if you're going to join a synagogue, then, then you find out what the dues are. And he said, he told me, he said, well, we're having to move. He said, he said unfortunately, I think where we're moving, the synagogue starting a building program. <laughs> so, so I guess the dues go, go up. 
uh, which I guess is not that much different than what we do, but we just, we just uh, uh, advertise it differently. So this was, this was a lot going on. What do we see? How do all these things go together? We're finding out here that more and more evidence as Jesus is revealing himself to those that he's been most close to. Um, we have Peter's confession. We have the transfiguration. We have an example of, the, of his ability to heal. We have this really interesting miracle. You know, it's the only one involving a hook. You know, all the other times where there, there's, there's lots of fish miracles, right? There's the loaves and fishes. There's the cast your net on the other side fish thing. This is the only one that involves just one fish. It's the only miracle that involves a, a hook and not a net. Uh, there are several other unique things about this particular uh, miracle, but um, uh, I left it on my notes, which I forgot to bring. So uh, this was a big deal. I found it really interesting that we really understand what that transfiguration experience means to us today through Peter's eyes. So turn to 2 Peter. The first chapter. It's a lengthy section. I'll skip around a little bit, but Peter is going to speak to this group of folks at the end of his days. He's about done, right? He's perhaps not much further from death than Jesus was back then. Go down to verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In other words, I wasn't trying to be tricky as I was telling you about Jesus. I was laying it out as an eyewitness to who he is and all his majesty Verse 17, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven and we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter is remembering that, that very event and calling it to mind. And this is what's so cool. Do you know why he is making such a big deal about, I heard this, y'all. It's real. I want you to remember this, this is real. I'm not making this up. I'm not, I'm not trying to trick you. What was he trying to tell them? He was trying to remind them of who they were in Christ. Now go back to verse 3. His 
divine power, which he's going to testify to a few verses later, says his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. This is like Paul. You are a new creation. Old things are gone, right? The quartet's going to sing, all things are passed away, everything's new. That's what this is talking about. Peter's trying to remind them, remember who you are, and he's going to say, and and when you remember who you are and whose you are, you need to act a little differently. Verse 5, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. Skipping to verse 9, if you forget this, you're so nearsighted that you're blind, forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Don't forget. Don't forget who you were. Don't forget who you are now. Because this is the truth. Verse 12, Therefore I intend to always remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth, I think that it's right as long as I am in this body to remind you. In verse 15, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. He's going to tell as many people as he can. You get a hint here. He's going to say, and I'm going to write it down. <laughs> That's my take on that. I'm going to write it down because I saw him. I saw him in his glory. I saw him on the mountain. I saw God shut me up. Don't forget. We could all use that reminder, right? There's glory to come. But even right now, It says he's granted to us some of the things that pertain to life and godliness. All things that pertain to life and godliness. All right. That's all I got. Comments? All right. We'll close. Father, I thank you for the way that you revealed so much of yourself to those three um, who could tell us about it later, uh, to Peter, who could remind us about it. And, and like Peter says so many years later, um, you give us everything we need to be the people that you want us to be. And Father, I pray, Holy Spirit, that, uh, that you 
remind us daily and you empower us daily uh, to remember why we're here and who we were and more importantly who we are to be and we thank you that we can be brought to your family as sons who really don't owe anything except to you because of Jesus in his name I pray amen thanks everybody